I feel like, like to me, it feels like we need a massive drum roll, anticipation, celebration, confetti to be starting Matthew, because I've been thinking about it for so long. In fact, I planned this when we were in America, and I was thinking, what would be the first kind of gospel we would go through, and my heart kind of got set on Matthew. But it feels somewhat anticlimactic to be doing it now. But here we are. We're going to study the gospel of Matthew. It's going to take us about two years um, more or less. We could take longer. We'll see how we go. Um, if we get bogged down anywhere or just think it's going to be shorter and then we have to do more sermons on a, a section and passage. It's a big book. It's 28 chapters. Um, if you're new to the Bible, it's the first book of the New Testament. So after, you know, if you open to the parts where Jesus is, it's the first time we get to hear about Jesus. Um, it's, you know, it's an incredible story. In fact, if you look in Matthew, um, pretty much all of Mark is in Matthew. Um, so if you know the Gospel of Mark, like we've studied that as a church previously, we're going to see it again, but we're going to see it in a different light um, because each of the different Gospel writers uh, kind of paints this biography of Jesus from a different angle. Um, and so the Lord's going to teach us a lot through there. We've named this series, Jesus is King. Uh, and one of the dominant themes that comes through the book of Matthew is the kingship of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Uh, and that, you know, because if you know the story of Israel, as we're going to see today, they had kings and they were a kingdom. They were this empire, this dominion um, that all went wrong. And so G uh, Matthew introduces Jesus and the whole way through sustains this idea that he's the king. Uh, and it's going to be great to kind of study the kingship of Jesus, especially as we're in this world where we're looking to leaders all the time, where this world is, isn't feeling as much you know, safe and secure and as calm and peaceful as perhaps it did for you in the past. When you have Jesus as king and you have a, his kingdom ruling and reigning, it gives you strength, security, and peace no matter the circumstance. A, a gospel, we call, you know, we call these books gospels because... They are announcements of good news. That's what that word means. Gospel, the Greek word is euangelion, and it means good news, means great announcement. It's an exciting announcement. And each one of these gospels is sort of like a biography, um, you know, not like our modern biographies, an ancient biography, and it's sort of like a theological biography. So it's like, it's got all this you know, historical parts in it and narrative and story, but it's also written with a purpose to preach and teach and get a point across. So it's not just a mere recording of events. It's, it's the story of Jesus told definitely with bias. You know, the point of it is to preach to you. It's not just, here's something that Jesus did, and here's another nice thing. It's, here's what Jesus did, and this has an impact on your entire eternity. So it's, it's, it's as much biography as it is preaching. Um, it's also sort of like an instruction manual. You see, to be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus. Well, to know how to follow Jesus, you need to know what Jesus is like, what he did, what he said, what he told you to do. And so as we study the book of Matthew, not only is Matthew going to preach to us, not only is he going to show us who Jesus is, he's going to teach us how to live like Jesus, live for Jesus. Um, he's going to catechize us, if you know that word. So there's lots of things going on in this book. Um, Sometimes when we look back on the past and we think parochially like, oh, we've come so far, we're so much smarter than ancient people, their writings aren't that sophisticated. But if you actually study the book of Matthew and you look at it as just a piece of literature, it's incredibly complex. It's 28 chapters long, 
but it's beautifully pieced together. It's crafted. You know, all these stories are put in particular place for a particular reason. In fact, if you look through the book of Matthew, it's kind of, there's different ways you can split the whole book down, but one of the ways you can split it down is it's kind of centered around um, five sermons that Jesus preaches. Uh, And then there's narrative that kind of shows you the other side of it. So there's a sermon and then narrative, a sermon and then narrative, a sermon, narrative, sermon, narrative, all the way through with an introduction and conclusion. Um, You don't need to know all of that, but just so you know that there is this intricate style and this, you know, the literary device that goes behind it. And so as we read it and as we study it, be looking for that. Read it like you would a great piece of literature. Look, why did Matthew put this here? Why is it saying this? Why is it doing that, etc.? And look at, oh, what came before and what came after and what do we know about this person already? All those type of things are going to be really important. You see, one of the key things, like I said before, that Matthew is trying to do is show how the whole first half of the Bible, what's called the Old Testament, right, how Jesus fulfills that, how Jesus comes as the true and better Abraham, the true and better Moses, the true and better Israel, the true and better David, and Jesus comes and actually completes and fulfills the entire story. And that he comes not just as all those things, but as God himself. And my hope for the series is that through it all, we would fall more in love with Jesus. That we would learn how to become more like him. And that we would have a passion to share Jesus with the world. I hope that as new people come and as visitors and unbelievers come, that they'll be struck by this man, Jesus of Nazareth. This strange man, you know, this man that spoke in a way that no one else spoke like, did things that no one else has done. You think about it, it's so strange that 2,000 years later, we're still talking about him. We're still reading his words and analyzing his actions. J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop in the 19th century, he talked about the Gospels and he said this, The Gospels were written to make us acquainted with Christ. The Holy Ghost, that is the Holy Spirit, has told us the story of his life and death, his sayings and doings four times over. So there's four Gospels. Four different inspired hands have drawn the picture of the Savior. His ways, his manners, his feelings, his wisdom, his grace, his patience, his love, and his power are graciously unfolded to us by four different witnesses. Ought not the sheep to be familiar with the shepherd, he says? Ought not the patient to be familiar with the physician? Ought not the bride to be familiar with the bridegroom? And ought not the sinner to be familiar with the Savior? Beyond doubt, it ought to be so. The Gospels, he says, were written to make men familiar with Christ. And therefore, I wish men and women, of course, to study the Gospels. Surely we cannot know this Christ too well. Surely there is not a work, nor a deed, nor a day, nor a step, nor a thought in the record of his life which ought not to be precious to us. We should labor to be familiar with every line that is written about Jesus. I love that 
introduction he has to the Gospels. And I think that really catches my heart for this series, that we would become familiar with the man and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and that we would know him in a deeper, in a more complex and a more intimate way at the end. So let us begin our study of the book of Matthew by reading Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And it is a strange way to begin such an epic narrative. It's a list of names. Um, But as we get in, you'll see why Matthew does this and how it's actually an incredible um, piece of writing. So here we go. The Gospel of Matthew. This is the beginning of the New Testament. Verse 1 through 17. He's not so excited. (laughs) Sorry. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, which is an awesome name, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abuid. And Abuid, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathen. And Mathen, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, may you bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever found yourself watching a movie, absolutely loving the movie, totally involved, not aware of the time, you're involved in it, and then suddenly, right 
boom, it ends. You think, whoa, what, what happened? What, why'd the movie end? I had that experience um, when the new Star Wars came out ages and ages ago, the first good remake, you know, not episode whatever, one, two, and three, but when they got to episode seven or whatever it was, I was like so excited. I wasn't following the data, so I didn't know that it was part of like another set of trilogies. I thought it was just one movie they were bringing out. So I was engrossed. I was ready. I was excited. Finally, we're about to get to Luke Skywalker and the whole movie was gearing up to this moment. They get to the random island where he is and they see him for a second and then the movie ends. And I was like, whoa, what's happening? Why is it over? And I didn't realize that I'd actually come in to episode one of like a three-part series or whatever they're doing. I got so lost in the modern remake of Star Wars and the way that they did it. But that feeling of like all this work was building up to a moment and then suddenly it just is over. Well, that's kind of how the Old Testament ends. If you know the story of the Old Testament, it's going forward at this pace with all these hopes and expectations of this this people of Israel, God's people, to be in a land, to have a king, to have glory, to be blessing all the nations. And then suddenly, it ends. It ends with God's people just sort of in their land, but not really with any real influence or power or presence. The Old Testament Jews in this time would have been thinking, what about the promise to Abraham? What about the promise to David? What about this story that God's been writing? It's, it's just over. And then Matthew comes along, a follower of Jesus. That's who is writing this, also known as Levi in the Gospels. Matthew comes along and he completes the story. See, Matthew comes along and writes, you know, the the sequel to the prequel, the Old Testament being the prequel. And and Matthew comes along and actually ties together the entire story of the Old Testament. But the first chapter, this first section, as we read it, it kind of just looks incredibly boring to us, right? If you're going through your Bible reading plan or whatever, and you pull out and you see genealogy, like family tree, list of names, you're like, I am going to listen to this on four times speed if you've got the audio Bible. I'm going to skip through it. It's got no relevance to my life. But in this, in this marvelous list, he actually pulls together through all these names, through all of this, the entire Old Testament story. And what he's trying to show us is that the entire story of the Old Testament is resolved in Jesus. In fact, more than that, it's actually all about Jesus. Now, we kind of look at the list and think, isn't it just a family tree? What's the deal? But because we're like 21st century people in Sydney, you know, we don't quite get all the illusions that he's making in this list. It's sort of like when you go and see a movie, maybe it is a Star Wars movie, and you've never seen any of the other Star Wars films, and you're kind of watching it, and things are blowing up, and it seems dramatic, and you're kind of like, yeah, that was a good movie. But to the diehard fan, they know every name, they know every character, they're anticipating all the complications and the plots. And so when things happen, they're crying and they're cheering and they're sad and they're angry because they know everything that's going on. When they watch the movie, it's totally different to you if you've never seen Star Wars before. That's what it's like for us to read this list of names. For us, we're just like, cool, Shial Tiel, good on you, pal. But to them, they're like, Shial Tiel, you know, or Uzziah, or they're looking through and they're thinking, wait a second, what's going on? 
all these dots are clicking in their head. And so for us, we look at it and think, irrelevant. But Matthew actually has an incredibly important point that he makes in this first section of his gospel, which is why he starts like that. So why are these verses so mind-blowing? Why should we give our attention to them this afternoon? Because we're going to see today that it's not just a list of names. This is no mere family tree. You know, when your grandparents get excited about doing the whole genealogy thing and they've got it all listed out and they're trying to make you excited about it, but you're really not, but you're not along. It's not like that. The reason why they're excited and the reason why this is exciting is because it's not just a family tree. It's a story. You see, all these names, all these people, all these moments, it's a story. It's the story of King Jesus. And it's not just the story of Jesus, it's the story of Israel. And it's not just the story of Israel, it's actually the story of the entire world. The entire universe is encapsulated in the story of Jesus. Because in this story, we see the story of God. This genealogy, all these names listed here, 14 generations, 14, 14, all these names will set up the entire rest of the story of Matthew. The whole story that God wants to tell about his son, Jesus Christ. So, in order to understand the gospel of Matthew, the main point we want to see today is that we need to see the whole story. In order to understand the rest of the gospel of Matthew, we need to see the whole story. There's lots we can get out of it. Like if you just watch a random Star Wars film, you'll still enjoy it. But when you know all the names, dates, places, people, ideas, suddenly it all comes to life. And that's what my hope is for this message, is to help us to know the whole story so that when we go through the rest of the book of Matthew, all these dots and links and things and hopes and dreams and expectations, you start seeing them and go, oh, that was that and that was that and that was that. And then, oh, and then your view and vision of Jesus kind of comes together. And if you're new to the Christian faith and you're new to studying, you know, this is going to be a huge amount of information. Don't worry if it doesn't make sense to you. Ask lots of questions. It's a huge, you know, big story and you're just coming in, you know, right here. But hopefully it makes you interested and engaged and make you want to know, what does this all mean? So we're going to dive into this genealogy. This is all I'm preaching on today with three points. Point number one. The story so far. Point number two, the story fulfilled. And point number three, the story continues. Let's jump into point number one. The story so far. So as I said, we're coming into the like to the moment where the the movie ended abruptly, and then we're picking up in the second episode of the movie so to speak and we're trying to figure out like what's the link how's it all going to resolve how's it going to get together and it's really important that we understand this because when we read the book of Matthew we've got to understand that it has a prequel there's a whole story that has already happened beforehand as western individuals we don't necessarily always care about the backstory we care about ourselves and where do we fit in the story 
But Matthew here is trying to show us how the backstory is incredibly important to understanding who Jesus really is and was. And so we're going to jump in and actually give you a little bit of an overview of the entire story of the Bible so far. Hence, point number one, the story so far. And you would have noticed in this genealogy that um, Matthew split it into three epochs, or let's call it episodes. Episode one, Abraham. Episode two, David. And episode three, like the deportation. And I kept on pronouncing that differently. Deportation, deportation. Which one is it? Is American deportation? Or would we say? Okay, deportation. We'll go with that. So three episodes in this, you know, this family tree. And they actually represent kind of a way in which we can understand the whole rest of the Old Testament. So let's start in episode number one with Abraham. If you read in verse one, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, Matthew says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah. Now those names mean a lot to Old Testament Israel, um, and to us they may not mean a whole lot. But before we even start to unpack those names, we need to back up just a tiny bit and go to the beginning of the world. You see, in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, it tells this story of Creator God creating the universe out of nothing. Out of nothing. Complete ex nihilio, just boom, there's creation. There's, there's nothing and then there's something. And it wasn't, you know, by chance. It wasn't just, you know, you know some miraculous lucky event it was by creator god and the creator brought together this world for his glory a place to demonstrate his beauty and magnificence to his creatures he makes adam and eve gives them this task to go throughout the whole world subdue the earth and demonstrate who god is and be his image bearers all over the world adam and eve get this all wrong really early on in the story, and they, instead of worshipping Creator God, they want to be God themselves. They want to call the shots. They want to decide what is good and right. They want to, you know, be the boss. And as a result, this, this plan for the glory of God to spread through culture and cities all over the world is ruined early on in the story. The presence of God, which was free for Adam and Eve, they could be in the presence of God, now they're barred from His presence. They're kicked out of the Garden of Eden and they're condemned to die. From that point on, this evil curse, this cancer that's been in all of humanity is born in every generation since. We call it sin, depravity. And each generation born of Adam and Eve slowly starts to get worse and worse and worse. Already this story seems so broken and marred. And then along comes Abraham. And this is where Matthew starts the, this genealogy of Jesus with this man called Abraham. He wasn't a, you know, a God follower. He sort of worshipped all different types of gods. But for no particular reason that we can see, God chooses this one man, Abraham, as the place to re, or as the person to begin the remaking of the entire world. He restarts, so to speak, his plan for the, the whole of the earth to be full of his glory with this man called Abraham. And he says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he says, well, the, the writer, most likely Moses, says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, 
Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house into the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see how in this man, God gives these promises to remake the broken world. You're going to have a land like the Garden of Eden, but a new land. You're going to have a people. You're going to start to spread and multiply. And through you, I will make my name known and I will bring blessing to all the earth. Whatever your view of God is, He's actually a God that wants to bless people. He wants to bring abundance and joy and life to people. And we're the ones that are always wanting to make it up on our own without God, and it always leads to ruin. And here is one of the most significant moments in all the Bible, which is why Matthew makes such a big mention of the fact that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Because through Abraham, God is going to restore this broken world. Through Abraham's line, the hope of the world rests. Well, the sons of Abraham, you know, they're clearly not this perfect person that's going to, you know, be the ones that spread the glory of the Lord everywhere. In fact, in some ways, they're, you know, scoundrels and sinners just like each one of us. Abraham has sons, and then eventually he has a, um, a grandson called Jacob who has 12 sons, which is where we get the 12 tribes of Israel from. And in this family line, God starts to move them from wherever they were into the promised land, Canaan. They start to gather and be a bigger people, and they start to become a blessing. And you sort of, as you read through Genesis, you're thinking, ah, is this where God's going to remake the broken world? But then the book of Genesis ends with you know, the God's people living in Egypt. They're no longer in this promised land, Canaan, Monday Israel. And so you're thinking, what's going to happen? You flick to the next book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, and you find out that in the 400 years between, you know, Jacob's last children, the, the Israelites, these people of God, have actually gone into slavery. And you think, oh, what, what's happened to this promise to Abraham? God rises, rises up a leader called Moses. You may know the story. Um, and he comes through as a great deliverer. God's people are rescued from the, from the land of Egypt, and they're set free set back on their way into the promised land. They're given a new law, a new set of commands, like back in the, you know, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were told to not eat from this tree and only eat from these places. Now they have a new law, a new way of bringing God's, you know, the way that God wants the world to be. They are meant to live that out. And importantly, he gives them instructions on how to make a tent, which again seems very... You know, pedestrian but this tent is you know the actual dwelling place of God so the garden they lose the presence of God now through Moses and through God's grace to the people of Israel they're going to get the presence of God back when they build the tabernacle at the end of the book of Exodus God actually fills this tent and they're in his presence again it's a really important moment but it doesn't last very long because finally the people of Israel get into the promised land and it's meant to be this great incredible moment but again, it doesn't take long for them to rebel against God. And they end up for 400 years in this cycle of sin and this cycle of doing whatever they want and not following His laws. And that leads us to the end of episode one in Israel's history that Matthew's trying to tell us. 
and we come to verse 6, to episode 2. If you read it with me, it says, or verse 5, And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon. Now, this is an incredibly important moment because this takes us into episode two of God's plan to remake a broken world. Because with David, now, Israel has gone from being leaderless to having a king. They're a kingdom that now has a king. And God makes this incredibly important promise to David. God says this to him. So you've got the first really important promise is Abraham, land, offspring, blessing to all the earth. Now, this is the second really important promise. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, this is God speaking to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. That's the temple. This is what Solomon does. But then listen to this. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, that means when he sins, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. That means whip. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established Ever. So this is Almighty God speaking to David, making a promise. Your throne, your kingdom, your kingship will be established forever. That's a long time, right? <laughs> that means it doesn't end. Okay, there's no end to the kingdom of David. It will always exist. Even today. That's what he's saying. So what happens? Could this be the moment? Could this be the man that God is going to use to bring about all the blessings of Abraham, the covenant promises? Well, David, he's good, but not great. He, he fails in many different ways. His son, Solomon, is really good, but then crashes and burns incredibly hard uh, toward the end of his life. Solomon builds a temple, and, and God fills that, and his presence is with God's people. They're richer and smarter and wiser than all the nations but Solomon gives in to his temptations and his lusts. And eventually his kingdom gets ruined from within. His son becomes the leader of Israel. And through his folly and arrogance, the kingdom of Israel, this incredible kingdom that is meant to be a blessing to all the earth, gets torn in two. The kingdom is divided, never to be reunited again. The north is led by a rebel king, Jeroboam. The south is led by Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And they separate. The kingdom is now divided. And over this period, all these names that come through represent all these different kings. Some of them were really faithful. Some of them were really not. And they're all part of Jesus' family history. Eventually, the northern kingdom, called Samaria in the New Testament, the northern kingdom gets taken over by Assyria. And they get wiped out, basically. The southern kingdom, the kingdom that was promised to last forever, gets taken over by Babylon. 
the temple gets destroyed and the people get taken off, which is why Matthew talks about the deportation of Israel. And so all the people of Israel are now kicked out of their own land. They're this shrunken people. They're not this great land offspring blessing and they're a blessing to no one anymore. You start to think that Israelites were thinking, where is God in all of this? Is he a liar? Is he unfaithful? Is he untrue? And they live in exile for a number of years. Um, and just for those who know history, the, the Babylonians rise up really quick and then fall really hard because of their arrogance. The Persians come through and they take over the whole world. And then King um, Cyrus of Persia gives this incredible proclamation to the Israelites and says, you can actually go home. And not only can you go home, but I'm going to give you all the money, tools, and things you need to rebuild your kingdom and to rebuild your temple. So the Israelites head home. They rebuild the walls of the temple and they rebuild the temple. But it's this really anticlimactic moment because the presence of God never fills it. They build the tabernacle, the presence of God there. They build the temple, the first temple, the presence of God fills it. They rebuild the temple after its destruction and it's never filled with the presence of God in the same way again. During this time, the people, although they're in the promised land, there's this sense of despondency and this sense of, where is God in all of it? The great prophets rise up and they bring messages from God. And they tell of this great hope, this, that this isn't the end of the story. That even though things don't look great, something greater is going to come. Listen to one such prophet. This is a guy named Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9, this is what it says. This is a promise for them. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, and over his kingdom to establish it. Sorry, where have I gone? And over his kingdom to establish it. There we go. And to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's a grand promise, right? So they're in, you know. They're hoping for someone like this to come about. They're needing someone like this to come about. They're desperate for someone like this to come about. Well, the, no one comes. Alexander the Great rises up, takes over the whole world in about 13 years. Incredible. He dies suddenly. The kingdom, his kingdom gets split. Eventually, the the Seleucid Empire comes through and takes over Israel. They had various moments in that time where they had power and prestige, but nothing like they had under David. Eventually, this horrific king, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, which is one heck of a name, he eventually comes into the temple. He's, he's a Greek ruler from the Seleucid Empire, and he sacrifices a pig on the altar in the temple, which if you know the Israelite laws, that's a big no-no. That leads to a Jewish revolt and great hope. 
the Maccabean revolt comes in in this time. This is 180-ish BC. They kick out the Seleucids. They come in. They take over Israel again. They have control of the temple. And things start to look up again. They start to think, is this the time when God will restore the kingdom of Israel? But unfortunately, they couldn't get their act together. Um, They started fighting within themselves. And so over time, they end up calling for help. And they ask Rome. They say, hey, Rome, could you come in and help sort out our problems? Which one of us should be the real king of Israel? And Rome comes in and says, none of you. Kicks them both out, kills them all, and they end up taking over Israel in 63 BC. Where's God in all of this? (laughs) The promise to Abraham, the promise to David, the promise of this Messiah figure, this anointed one, this king that's going to come in and make everything better. Where is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? And so by the time we arrive in the New Testament, when Jesus is born, the Israelites are living in Israel. They actually have a temple that's been rebuilt by Herod. But the presence of God, not really there. They're ruled by Rome. So they're in their land, but they're not really in power. And they've got this great need, this great hope for a king to come. The one that was promised. The one that will come with the government with no end, the increase of his power, all this to come. Yet they still feel like they're in exile. Exiles in their own land. And that's sort of where the Old Testament ends. It ends with no glory, no great king, no great fulfillment of the promise of Abraham. And so the people are left wandering and waiting and hoping. So that's the story so far. Now that's a really, really long point, and you may know that already. But if you don't, it really helps to give you the background for the second episode, you know, the New Testament that's coming through. You've got Abraham. You've got David. You've got this exile, deportation, but no resolution, only mess. And that leads us to point two story fulfilled so what's the solution to this mess how does God bring about change how does the promise to Abraham come true how does the promise to David come true how does the promise of the prophets that this Messiah this anointed one this son of David come true well now let's reread the back end of that genealogy so you got David and Solomon, and then we get to verse, say, let's go verse 15 of chapter 1. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And as Matthew pens those sentences, that's a massive mic drop moment for any Jewish person reading it at the time. That was just like, oh, that's when the glasses come on and, you know, whatever that meme is. You know what I mean? That's like badass moment because he is saying that the story 
is finished. Well, the story, not finished, but the story is fulfilled. And it's fulfilled in the man I'm about to tell you about in the rest of my book, in Jesus, the son of Mary, the son of Joseph. You see, he calls him this very special name, Christ. Now, that name Christ just seems like Jesus' last name, but it's not. It's a title. And it's a title which means, well, it's the Greek word for the Hebrew word, Messiah. Messiah is a word which means anointed one. Anointed one is a word which means king. So when he says Jesus, who is called the Christ, he is saying Jesus, who is king. Jesus, who is the promised one that was talked about all the way through this entire book. You read it from Genesis to Malachi. The whole thing is looking for this one. And then Matthew throws the mic down. He's like, he's here. It's him. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the one who walked and talked and lived among you. He is king. It's like in The Matrix. You know, if you've seen that, another great movie where... They're looking, who's the one, who's the one? And then suddenly, right toward the end of the movie, Neo, they're like, is he the one, is he the one, is he the one? I don't know, is he the one? And then he starts to bend backwards and time stops and he starts to beat up Agent Smith and he's like, he's the one, he's the one! That's what Matthew was trying to do throughout this whole genealogy. The whole thing has been pieced together so that for the ancient Jewish person, they can see without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is perfectly on the mark to be all that he said he was. He's a son of Abraham. That means all the promise that was promised to Abraham can be fulfilled in Jesus. A new land, incredible offspring, and a blessing to all nations. He's the son of David, which means that the kingdom, the throne that is meant to last forever, is going to last forever through Jesus. In fact, his name, Jesus, is the same name, if you read in the Old Testament, Joshua. Joshua and Jesus is the same name. It means the Lord saves. And so Matthew, in the first line of this genealogy, in verse 1, he gives it all away. Read verse 1 again and you'll see it. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In that one line, if you were an observant Jew, you probably don't even, if you knew Jesus' life, you don't even need the rest of the gospel. Like, it's him. i got to follow him. He's from Abraham. He's from David. It's the one. It's the one. He's the Savior. He's the anointed one. He's the king with all authority. And he's the one that's going to bring the, ble- the blessing to all nations. Son of David, son of Abraham. And next week we're going to see he's the son of God. All authority, all nations, and always with us. Which is in fact how Matthew ends his gospel. If you remember Matthew chapter 28. All authority has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. And behold, I will be with you always. Matthew is taking pains to put this whole genealogy together so that we can see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the story. When you know it, it starts to all make sense. It's exciting, but you know, it, I'd forgive you if you're sitting there going, why does this matter? <laughs> like, 
Help me, preacher. Um, And that leads us to point number three. Why is this message that Jesus is king good news? Point number three, the story continues. See, the reality is that this is not just Israel's story. It's our story. We are in the movie. Because each of these names of Jesus are true or have implications for us too. You see, the name Jesus is that the Lord saves. God is a saving God. If you follow Jesus, you can enter into salvation. The salvation that He promised all of Israel is now open to you. If you look through that genealogy, there's actually a whole lot of terrible people. A whole lot of people with loose backgrounds and promiscuous backgrounds and unbelieving backgrounds. And yet they're here, they're included. Because God is a savior of all people. Anyone who's humble enough to admit that they need saving can go to Jesus. Because what has he come to do? Save. It's in his name. The fact that he is the Christ, the son of David. Why is that good news for us? Why is it good news that he has all authority? Well, it's good news because if you bow your knee to him and swear allegiance to the king, you have the good and gracious God of the universe. Well, you're on the good side of him. You're on his team. So you have his might, his power, his strength, his riches, his glory on your side. Why is it good that Jesus is the son of Abraham? Because God's promise to Abraham was that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him because jesus is of abraham that means all types of people no matter their culture creed or color can become followers of jesus this whole story was about jewish people we were waiting the whole time to really find out when does the rest of the world get in on the blessing and in jesus all people of all nations of all races of all cultures are included in him because he's the one that fulfills the promise of Abraham. And because he's the son of God, he is always with us. We're never alone. Now, it's a strange way to start an incredible narrative, which we're going to see throughout the rest of the book. But in this genealogy, we see this. We see the faithfulness of God the whole way through. He keeps his promises. He kept them then, even when it looked like he wouldn't. And he's keeping them now. We see the grace of God then and now. He shows grace to the people of God this whole time, even though they're rebellious, just like you and I. He still welcomes them. Any who come to him in humility, he accepts them. And so in this family tree... It's not just names for interest's sake. It's a story. Our story. Your story. Israel's story. The story of Jesus. The story of the King. See, Christianity, friends, it's not a philosophy. It's not a worldview. It's not a self-help guide. Christianity is a kingdom with a king and his people. Christianity has a story. It has history. 
It's not an idea. It's a lived reality. The king has come. Matthew is telling us that he is here. He rules. He reigns. He lives. He breathes. He talks. He walks. He fights. He argues. He loves. He heals. He serves. He dies. He rises. He conquers. He wins. He is Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God. And he is king. And here in this genealogy, Matthew is inviting you to bend your knee and swear allegiance to the king and enter into the joy of his kingdom and have the power and the glory and the might of the king on your side. So friends, as we begin this gospel, I invite you, follow King Jesus. Experience Him as Savior. Experience Him as the, the one who rules and directs your life. Experience His inclusivity through Abraham, all nations. And experience His presence. He's always with us. He's Emmanuel, Son of God. And enjoy living in the kingdom of the King. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank You that you tell stories and that we get to be included in it. We thank you for this story, Lord, from beginning and middle and as it continues. Lord, we ask that you would help us to know Jesus, to become like Jesus and to share Jesus. Would you help us to know the story and love the story and be a part of proclaiming the story? Lord God, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus as king. He left heaven in eternal glory and became like flesh, like us. So Lord God, would you help us to know him, love him, and bend our knee to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.